This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in Deuteronomy. Welcome Welcome to to the club. In chapters 10 and 11, Moses became quite passionate about a few things for the just do it list. Specifically, he told the Israelites, do not rebel against God like they did at Mount Sinai. In fact, he wants them to remember and never forget what happened with the golden calf. And he said, do not rebel against God like they did at Kadesh Barnea when they panicked at the spies report and then had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What should they do? Fear, revere God walk in his ways, love God, serve God, and observe God's laws. Moses sums it up in a pattern. If they fear God, they will walk in his ways. And if they love God, they will serve him and observe his laws. And I think that's still true for us Mm -hmm. today. Still true. Well, this episode, chapter 12, begins a new section in Deuteronomy. We're still in the Just Do It sermon, but part two of the sermon. And Moses' mood deepens. He is deeply concerned by the faith crisis Israel may face in Canaan. I almost feel like he got a foreshadowing of this. And don't you think he also knows that it's nearing the end of his life, right? Oh, it's definitely the end of his life, but he's just ramping up and going over these principles with them so much. I think God must have given him some insight in what was going to happen because he's he just keeps going at it, you know, like maybe I can head this off some way. It's kind of like if you've ever been in a situation with someone you know really well, a friend, your spouse, your child, and they are rapidly running down a path similar to one they have been down before, one where they made some terrible mistakes. And you can clearly see where this is going to end up. So you try to apply what happened before to this new situation with them in the hope that they will see the light and avoid another catastrophe. Isn't it always easier to see that in other people? Oh, yes, totally, than yourself. Well, Moses is looking off to the future and he sees the path to the promised land. And he is strategizing in his head. How can I get the Israelites safely settled in the land without going with them? Because he knows he's not allowed. He knows them and he knows that they could mess up here or here or here or basically anywhere because they've messed up so much in the past. And so Moses, like any great coach, goes over some new plays to win the game because no matter what the new opposition brings, the Israelites still need to play the game according to God's rules to win. And those rules loosely follow Moses's life work, the Ten Commandments. Many Bible commentators believe that these next few chapters parallel the Ten Commandments, providing the Israelites with specific details of how to obey the commandments while living in the promised land. In other words, this is Moses's just do it expanded version. Beginning in chapter 12, Moses begins with a review of the fundamentals of faith. Look, he says, you're getting a new playing field in the promised land, but the commandments are the same. 
So when you get to the promised land, start the game right and just do it. Obey the first and second commandment, which are, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth. Moses knows that if the Israelites are going to keep the commandments, they cannot be like the Canaanites. And the Canaanites have multiple gods and multiple places of worship filled with idols. Moses addresses the second commandment, one place of worship first. The first thing the Israelites must do is to destroy all Canaanite places of worship and destroy anything to do with idolatry. Chapter 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of our ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Azra poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Moses is painting this picture of what's going to happen when they get into this land. Canaanite places of worship were often called high places because they were located throughout the land on hills or mountains. By wiping out the places and names of these Canaanite gods, the Israelites would not remember them, nor would future generations of Israelite children learn of them and be tempted to worship them. Then Moses instructs Israel that they will have just one place of worship, not all these high places all over the place. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Okay, let's talk about this one place. Moses makes it clear that God will choose the one place for his dwelling. Now, his dwelling currently is, remember, the tabernacle that they built and they put the Ark of Covenant in the most holy place. And that's where he dwells right now. The concept of one place is not a surprise because the Israelites spent a lot of time and energy creating the tabernacle with the one Ark for the presence of God to dwell. You can check out all the details of that because we covered it at length in Exodus and in Numbers season two and four. Currently, the Israelites all lived or camped around this one place, the tabernacle. It was the center of their community. Worship and sacrifice took place right in the middle of the camp. In the promised land, they would be spread out over a great distance. So, of course, how will they worship and sacrifice? It's not going to be accessible. Moses is heading off any temptation that they might have to build their own community place of worship. In verse 5, he makes it clear that it is to that place you must go to sacrifice. This will involve a pilgrimage to that one place for all the people who live far from that place. And because they don't know where that place is going to be, that could be anybody. What Moses does not make clear is where and when a permanent location for the ark will be revealed. King David is the one who receives that instruction 
in 1 Chronicles 21. Listen. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arunah was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached. And when Arunah looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. So more stuff happened. And and in summary, David purchases the threshing floor from Arunah for the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time on the high place at Gibeon. Okay, so the tabernacle is currently at Gibeon, but God has given uh, David instructions to buy this place for the future temple. David bought the land under the instruction of God, and it was on that site that David's son, King Solomon, built the temple. Now, the history behind the place David purchased for the temple to be built is very interesting. And we talked about this a few seasons ago, but I want to bring it up here because it's really cool. Erna's threshing floor was a rock located on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. It says in verse two, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you just like God showed David. But God provided a ram at the last minute saving Isaac, which is super symbolic. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide because a substitute was provided. I hope you're thinking of Jesus as our substitute, the ram of God, the lamb of God. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So that's what Abraham said. This is the mountain of provision. So what will the Lord provide on this mountain? Let's take a closer look at what's happened on this very mountain, this rock, this threshing floor that David purchased years after Moses said there would be one place, which was years after when Isaac sacrificed, when Isaac was almost sacrificed there. So right now you're just kind of setting up giving us a, we're going back to the future, basically. we're going back to the future. future. And you're giving us a glimpse into the fact that God keeps his promises and he'll do the same for you today. But this is just a tangible example of how God keeps his promise to Moses, even though Moses doesn't know what it's going to look like. Correct. This is a very special place. The Jews have traditionally regarded the location of the threshing floor of Arana or the rock on Mount Moriah as the holiest spot on on earth because it is where Isaac was almost sacrificed and it is the site of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple where the Ark of the Covenant sat for years. Now, the Muslims believe that the rock on Mount Moriah 
is the place from which the Prophet Muhammad ascended into heaven. The most famous and oldest Islamic site is the Dome of the Rock, a shrine that was completed in 692 and completely covers the rock where Israel's temple once stood. Muslims also consider Abraham a prophet. However, instead of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, their Quran suggests Ishmael, not Isaac, was the sacrificial son. Because Muslim authorities have refused to permit Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, which is the rock, the Jews developed a custom of praying near the Western Wall. So currently, the rock is controlled by the Muslims. Now, for the Christians, the Lord provided so much more on Mount Moriah. The Temple Mount is where Jesus prayed and taught. And on the very northern ridge of Mount Moriah, just outside of Jerusalem, was where Jesus was crucified. This threshing floor, purchased by David, that became the temple and is now called the Dome of the Rock and controlled by the Muslims, is probably the most sacred and disputed piece of real estate in the world. It is a holy place for Christians, for Jews, and for Muslims. We're going to put in the show notes a map, picture, and a couple of videos of the rocks. You can actually see a picture of it. Um, uh, and you can actually look at a co- even a couple videos because it's just fascinating to know as we're reading these Old Testament verses that this was promised to the Jews. Now, note, the good news for us is that we no longer are restricted to one place of worship. So for the Christians, this is not huge. Paul said it's not huge to us anymore that we don't have access to this rock. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. But to the Jews who were exiled from Jerusalem because they didn't keep God's word, this place is something they want back and it's controlled by the Muslims. Now, next, Moses reviews with the Israelites what they must do at this one place of worship, which he explained first in great detail in Leviticus, but this is continuing on in Deuteronomy. Verse 6, there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do this as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then, to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord, and there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your town who 
have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. Moses' instructions for worship are a sharp contrast to Canaanite worship. And he kind of inserts this little chastisement to them because apparently the people were worshiping as they saw fit, despite the laws that restricted sacrifice to the tabernacle in Leviticus 17, but they're living in a camp. So it might've been hard. I don't know. Moses reiterates that there is just one God and therefore just one place for worship and for the forgiveness of sins. All are invited to bring their sacrifices or offerings. That includes burnt offerings, tithes, gifts, free will offerings, firstborn offerings. Listen to Leviticus season three. We outline them all. And you can even check out the Leviticus five offerings chart printable in the show notes, which our great graphic artist did, which details the offering name of all these offerings, the Bible verse that corresponds to it, the purpose of each offering and what was offered offering and even the associated offerings, because sometimes... Most times you had two or three offerings mixed together. Uh, We will put all that in the show notes. So all are invited to bring their sacrifices and all are invited to eat. This was an act of fellowship and communion with God when they all came together in this pilgrimage to the tabernacle. And all are invited to celebrate God's blessings together as a nation. Next, Moses outlines how living apart from that one place of worship, the tabernacle, is going to be different in the promised land. And he starts with the fact that Animals for food in the future in the promised land can be killed on location. Verse 15. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. So currently in the camp, killing animals and the spilling of blood was considered to be impure. And so there was a certain way they had to do it. But when they get to the promised land, of course, they have to eat meat. And so that's why he refers kind of to a gazelle or deer, which are like wildlife versus kind of um, domesticated um, animals. And he's saying here, don't confuse food with sacrifices. In the camp, the slaughtering of animals took place at the tabernacle because you couldn't defile the camp. It had to be pure for God to dwell there. In the surrounding cultures, killing animals and blood was associated with idolatry. So that's why they still have rules. So the Israelites were confined to killing in a controlled environment with the priests at the tabernacle to avoid becoming like, you know, all those other cultures. But in the promised land, the people will be spread out and the tabernacle far away. So Moses opens the door to eating meat without it being slaughtered at the tabernacle. However, he warns that they are not to eat the blood. Eating blood was discussed in multiple chapters of Leviticus. Blood was prohibited for several reasons. The blood represented the animal's life and therefore belonged to the Lord, the creator of life. This ordinance included the blood of animals wherever they ate, whether it was a fellowship offering or something prepared just for everyday dinner. Now, note to us, the New Testament supports this Old Testament law in Acts 15.29 about blood. In a letter from Paul to the Gentiles, Paul instructs us. 
You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of the strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So we're just really not supposed to drink blood. It's just a bad thing. Well, I think that wasn't it in some ways the surrounding cultures, I think you taught me this maybe in Leviticus or it could have been um, also in Numbers, that these cultures were utilizing the drinking of blood as idol worship or, or as worshiping their gods. Right. And so it's an, just like you said it a minute ago, it's God telling them you're not to worship any other God but me. And that was the representation or the tangible um, but for whatever it. reason, Paul applies it to even the New Testament, mm -hmm. you know, just because blood represents life, I think, and it's a precious thing. Now, the second thing that Moses reiterates is no eating tithes or firstborn offerings outside of the tabernacle. So while you can eat meat, tithes and off firstborn offerings have to be done at the tabernacle. Verse 17, you must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and olive oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you have vowed to give or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. So he's saying here, ties are to be eaten at the one place of worship only. You're going to have to make that pilgrimage. And they'd have to make that trip and do it all together. And that's because it was special. It was sacrificial. It was to worship God. The third thing he says is take care of the Levites or priests in your area. Verse 19, be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. And we went over this in prior seasons in great detail. The Levites were um, supported and fed through the people in their area. So as they move into the promised land, God uh, is going to separate the Levites in the towns and areas so they can minister to the people and the people are to support them. All right, here's our final review on food from Moses. Verse 20, when the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised you and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and in your towns, you may eat as much of them as you want. Eat them as you would gazelle or deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat, but be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that it may go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all these regulations I am giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. And then lastly, Moses says, do not be tempted to adopt 
detestable Canaanite ways of worship. Verse 29, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in a fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Moses is getting really dramatic, but it's important. He said they even burn their children, you know, like he's just drama. escalating. And he's used that phrase that we know so well now, be careful. Be careful, be careful, be careful. And remember that the Hebrew word for be careful is shamar. And we discussed it, I think in last episode. Shamar means to put a hedge of thorns around it, protect it as if your life depends on it. In summary, put a hedge of protection around these commandments and you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be exiled. This land that you are being given, you will be driven out of. Now, chapter 13 continues, but chapter 12, you know, Moses addressed this one place of worship, which is really the second commandment. Moses addresses the first commandment in chapter 13, worship one God, or you shall have no other gods before me is what the commandment reads. Moses warns the Israelites about apostasy, which is just a big word for abandoning God. Moses is justly worried about this, and he gives several examples of how it could happen and what to do if it does happen. Again, he sees them moving into this playing field, this new area, and just going crazy. Like, oh my gosh, we have land, and we have fruit, and we have food. And remember, they've been eating man and all kinds of terrible things forever. They've been living in this camp, you know, and they're going to get spread out. And he just is so worried that they're going to be tempted and they're not going to stick to what they've been instructed to do. These, this Again, Moses' life work, these 10 commandments. So the first he warns about is the temptation to follow false prophets, which he knows if they don't kill all the Canaanites, it's, it's just going to be a free for all of false prophets. Chapter 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces a sign or of wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. I chose that verse, verse four. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere, keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. Because it reminded me of last episode when we talked about, you know, um, Moses commanding them to fear God. And really what that word translates to is revere God. It's not like, 
it, it is a fear kind of, but it's more a reverence. And I love this verse because it still applies today. If we keep his commands and revere him and obey him and serve him and hold fast to him, all will work out. Do you think this passage could be one of the reasons that the, the Jews felt that they should put Jesus to death? Because he they saw him as a prophet. And possibly they were commanded to put to death prophets who potentially could turn them. They just didn't realize that he was God and yes. he was right. Yes. But that could have been one of the reasons well, why I think they he, told Pilate to crucify him. He definitely threatened how legalistic they'd become um, about the law. And that probably felt really threatening to their infrastructure. And so, mm-hmm. yes, they probably did see him as a false prophet and wanted to get rid of him quickly. Yeah, they just didn't realize. Right. The second temptation to abandon God could come from a relative. Verse six, if your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death. And then the hands of all the people stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. It sounds really severe, but but this is how radical they needed to be to make sure that they followed God and did not succumb to the culture around them, which is kind of convicting to us today. Do we do we put up a hedge of thorns around ourselves or our families to protect us from the culture? It is like when you see how radical they are, it kind of is convicting that we are just not as intense. Well, we've become apathetic over time. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The third temptation to abandon God could come from the community. Verse 12, if you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true— and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. And none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. Then the Lord will turn from his fierce anger, will show you mercy, and will have compassion on you. He will increase your numbers, as he promised on oath to your ancestors, because you obey the Lord your God by keeping all his commands that I am giving you today and doing what is right in his eyes. Moses warns that the temptation to abandon God, or apostasy, can come from anywhere from a false prophet, a family member, or an entire community. No matter where it comes from, the response is the same. The false prophet must be put to death. The Israelites have witnessed firsthand what can happen when they abandon God, as they did in Numbers 25, Season 4, Episode 13, when they mixed it up with the temple prostitutes and worshipped Baal pure. 
The priest, Phineas, the killer priest, we called that episode, was the model for righteousness and speared the man and the prostitute in one swift move. But this problem of apostasy is not going away. And while many future heroes like Elijah and Josiah remember Moses's words and take action, there are so many Israelites that don't. And apostasy becomes a cancer in Israel that leads to exile from the promised land. Our New Testament Moses counterpart, or second Moses, as he is sometimes called, the Apostle Paul, addresses apostasy in Galatians 1. And just like Moses, he repeats himself to make sure we heard him correctly. Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The Greek word for this expression, under God's curse, is anathema, which means eternally condemned. Paul is saying twice here, if anyone preaches to you other than what they have preached, they should be eternally condemned. The lesson for us is this. The fundamentals of faith, the Ten Commandments, apply to us also. We, too, can easily fall prey to false idols. And our false idols are usually much more subtle, a slow creep that can cause a huge chasm in our loving the Lord with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.